Romans chapter 3 here this morning, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, as we continue our journey here, uh, last week we finished up with verse uh, 20, but I want to start with verse 19 and 20 to again give us the context of what uh, he's presenting here, and, and again, as, as we've been presenting, as we've been seeing that this is essentially like a, a court case, a court trial, and the evidence has been brought forth. That's why I say we, we should start before Romans 3.10 and Romans 3.23 because people need to understand what it means to be a sinner and, and, and you know, unrighteous before a holy God. It says in a Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, says, Now we know that what uh, things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, but now, notice, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God." being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Now, as we notice again in verses 19 and 20, we see very clearly that all are going to be guilty before a holy God. Now, as we think about the, 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 the judgment that is, that is announced here, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Notice two things that will be resulting of this, that every mouth may be stopped, and second of all, that all the world become guilty before God. Now, it's very interesting The 1611 has a marginal reference uh, as far as uh, becoming guilty before God, subject to the judgment of God. Literally, I believe that's what we're talking about here as far as being guilty before a holy God. We are unrighteous in and of ourselves. That's why we need righteousness from someone else. That's why we need Jesus Christ's righteousness on our behalf. So literally what we're seeing here is that the judgment of God is, is going to be given out at you know, the great white throne judgment. Everyone is going to be found guilty before a holy God. No one is going to say, but, but God, but God, but God. No, no one's going to have any answer. Nobody's going to have any excuse. Nobody's going to have any explanation or justification for the way that they live their lives. Because the evidence is going to be there. Every mouth may be stopped. That's why more than once we've seen in the book of Romans, they're going to be without excuse. They're going to be without excuse. The sinner, the unrighteous person in, in, in chapter 1 who rejects creation, they're going to be without excuse because of creation. Also, when you think about even the, the uh, religious person, the moralist, whatever you want to call him in chapter 2, the religious hypocrite, they're also going to be without excuse. Thou art an inexcusable, O man. Uh, God very clearly says through the Apostle Paul's pen here that all the world may become guilty before God. Everyone is going to be subjected to the judgment of God. I want you to notice with me Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, as we 
understand this as far as the, the mouth being stopped. There's a parable here that I think is interesting. It has a, a statement here that I want for us to uh, kind of use as an application of this. This is the context of the kingdom of heaven. It's like unto a certain king, it says in verse 1, which made a marriage for his son. Obviously, this is reference to Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ and all those things. Well, the guests are invited and so on. But there's a part of this that I want to emphasize in verses 11 through 13. It says, And when the king came to see in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now, if we're going to understand historically and in context, the wedding garment was supplied by the, one, by the king who invited them to the, to the, uh, the, the wedding, the, the wedding of his son. So there's no reason for him to not have on a wedding garment because he didn't have one, didn't have enough money or whatever. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Notice that. He was speechless. Now, as far as application of this, the wedding garment would be very clearly an application of the righteousness of the saints we see in Revelation 19. So very clearly we also see that this man shows up at this wedding here And he does not have on a wedding garment. In other words, he's not covered in God's righteousness, as we see by way of application. And it says he was speechless. He had no answer for the king when he asked why he did not have on a wedding garment. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is none other than a description of hell. So he does not have on the covering of righteousness, the righteousness of God, And so, therefore, he is cast into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's cast into a literal hell. Everyone will know that they are guilty before God. Again, in Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 3.19, or verse 20, I should say, then, therefore, the deeds of the law, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We saw this last week briefly, where the, the law is given to us as a schoolmaster to show us that we cannot save ourselves. I cannot keep the law perfectly, neither can you. Not one of us has perfectly kept God's moral law. Not one of us can say that we are totally righteous before God. That's why, why again, the, the Bible emphasizes you can keep the law in every point, yet offend in one point, and you are guilty of all. You're guilty before a holy God because God is absolute right, absolutely righteous. Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. And so now as we move into verse 21 and following, again, I want for, for us to be reminded that everyone is standing before God as far as, as, far as this, this picture here of standing guilty before God. All are guilty. Not one person is going to have, have an answer for themselves in defense. So literally, God has to step in because no one can get to heaven in and of themselves. So God has to step in with his pardon. We see that in verses 21 through 31. So God is the righteous judge offers a way of pardon for those who cannot be right before God in and of themselves. Notice very key words here, but now. So Paul is emphasizing, all right, so this is, this is the problem, this is the situation where we are, but now. And he, notice he, again, he emphasizes the righteousness of God in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. The word manifested there speaks of being revealed. Manifest and re- reveal are, are interchangeable uh, synonym uh, terms. It says here, it's manifested, it's openly revealed to all. Most people do not want to see this truth, though, because that's too easy. I, I, I've, I've got to do something to save myself, surely. No, no, all you have to do is obey what God has said, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Notice here he's emphasizing the testimony of the Old Testament law and of the Old Testament prophets. Again, I, I, I remind you of something that I was told. In fact, I've had, had different ways of being told this from time to time over the years, but in particular there was a man in a church that I pastored. He, he told me, New Testament preachers should not be preaching from the Old Testament. So in other words, he just wrote off two-thirds of the Bible that we're not supposed to preach from. So, so let me ask you then, why, why is the case then in the New Testament where Paul often says, what does the Old Testament say? Let's go back to the Old Testament law. Let's go back to the prophets. There's why most people don't understand what's going on as far as salvation today, and that's a pretty scary thing in the New Testament church because they don't have an idea of what the Old Testament said so that they have the application of it in the New Testament. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested Notice being witness. This is a testimony by the law and by the prophets. So again, as you go back to this courtroom scene here, this idea here, they're standing guilty before God. And so now that they're bringing in testimony, they're bringing in witnesses. And so one of the witnesses that comes in is Old Testament law. So, so as, as we see here, the first testimony, you know, the, the witness I should say, that's brought to the stand is the Old Testament law. Notice with me uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18 is a statement that is, there's a statement made here in relation to the coming, first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says here in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 and following. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me. Now Moses is speaking here. It says, unto him ye shall hearken. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, God, Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, again Moses, again, Moses is writing this, he's, he's speaking this to Israel before they go into the promised land. The Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, like unto Moses, that's what the Lord is speaking here, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Now with that said, I want you to notice with me John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and, and here's the context of, as far as the Pharisees and, and all that, they were trusting in God's law, but they were not trusting in God to save them. So, so their, their confidence was in Moses. They're exalting Moses, and so they refuse to acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. With that said, notice it says here in verse 45 of John chapter 5, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. Their trust was in Moses. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. So notice here the testimony, the witness of the Old Testament law, Moses Jesus himself very clearly says that Moses wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So here's the first witness that's brought to the stand, the Old Testament law. Moses, in whom they were trusting, the law of Moses, here's the witness, first witness that comes in, and Moses says, Jesus Christ is coming. He's the prophet that the Lord spoke of. But also what you notice here, uh, Acts chapter 3 Acts chapter 3, here on the day of, or after the day of Pentecost, I should say, as the apostles are still presenting the truth about the Lord Jesus, 
And there's mixed responses to that, some unbelief. It says here in Acts 3, verse 19, Repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And ye shall send Je- he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of re- restitution, making right of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Notice we're talking now here about the prophets. For Moses, now this is the law, so we're talking about the law and prophets here. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. They're going to experience God's judgment. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets. Again, we're talking about the law and the prophets here in this passage. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Thy seed, speaking of Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3.16. Unto you first, unto you first, the Jew first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, turning away every one of you from his iniquities. That's God's desire. It's not just to repeat a prayer, but he wants to change us. Notice with me also 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. So here's the witness of the prophets. 1 Peter 1, verse 9 through 11. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets, Old Testament prophets, have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what? For a manner of time, the Spirit of Christ which was in them. Notice the Spirit of Christ was in them as they prophesied, as they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which was in them did signify. When it testified, here's our, testify, our, our testimony, our witness, when it, the Spirit, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Again, you think about this, this lie that's, that's repeated sometimes now, that Jesus Christ would not have had to go to the cross if the Jews had accepted their Messiah. That is a lie from the pits of hell, because literally Jesus Christ had to die. He came to the first time to be offered as a sacrifice uh, as far as the Old Testament is concerned. So very clearly we see in, in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So here's all of these Old Testament witnesses. They're now on the stand and say, God said they must believe in the coming Messiah. They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about this, then it says in verse 22. So again, the emphasis is on the righteousness of God here. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now you think about all that we've studied up to Romans 3.23. And most gospel presentations today will start in Romans 3.23. Here's my problem with that. They don't truly understand how much of a sinner they really are. My lie sent me to hell. Literally. Whosoever loveth the make of the lie. But I want you to notice very carefully the wording here. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Is that what your Bible says? I hope not. 
Notice it says, verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in or of Jesus Christ. Well, I did a checking of some of the modern Bibles. Most modern Bibles that I checked on replace this of in in. Now, I've emphasized the importance of prepositional phrases, prepositions. There's a big difference between of and in. Notice that. Notice even the faith, or by faith, I should say, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. So when the modern Bibles are changing something here, we need to pay attention to this. In fact, I want you to notice me Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> in fact, I preached an entire sermon on this um, years ago. The importance of of. The Bible emphasizes the faith of Jesus Christ. It says here in Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.16, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Notice, of and in. Both are in the same verse here. Faith of Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, <clears throat> law shall no flesh be justified. Right. Notice the importance of the word of. And if modern Bibles are changing that, then there's obviously a change in the message. We're talking about our faith. It's not my faith. You know, there's sometimes people will say, you know, how do you know you're going to have, I have my faith. Well, you better have more than your faith because your faith is inconsistent. Amen. Jesus Christ, it was faithful. In fact, he says in John 8, 29, he always did what his heavenly father wanted him to do. Always. Not one time did he ever violate the Old Testament law. So as we think about this, it says, by the faith of Jesus Christ, verse 20, Galatians 2, 20, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. His faithfulness is always sure. Mine is not. So therefore, my faith must be placed in his faith. It is the faith of Jesus Christ that we're trusting in. Again, Romans 3.22 says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God only comes by the faith of Jesus Christ. Notice it says then, Unto all and upon all them that believe. Notice God's pardon is applied through faith unto all. Uh, I'm sorry, upon all and unto all. Notice very clearly we see here, all are included. So that does not mean, you know, that, that means there is no such thing as limited atonement. Uh, in fact, we'll see this here in a moment, but, but the reality of this is it's available to all, to, unto everyone who believes. In other words, unto everyone who believes in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his faith before his heavenly Father, notice, then all can be saved. All, are, all have this pardon of open to them and, op, and offered to them, but not all will receive it. We'll talk about that here later. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Again, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between the heathen of chapter 1 and the respectable religious hypocrite of chapter 2. There, there's no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Notice the emphasis of the all there in verses 22 and 23. I don't believe we often see this. We pay attention to this. Notice again, unto all... And upon all them that believe, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God has given us the opportunity, everyone, all, the opportunity to be saved. 
and to receive this pardon. Now, now, with that said, notice it says, come short of the glory of God. Do we truly understand what it means to come short of the glory of God? Now, in Exodus 33, Moses prays, Lord, show me thy glory. How does God, how does the Lord respond to that? No man can see my face and live. So it's what, what he tells Moses is, I'm gonna, there's a cliff of the rock here close by. I'll hide you in the cliff of the rock. And in a sense, you can see my afterglory. No man can see my face and live. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 6. Even as far as the Lord Jesus, notice this statement. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. <clears throat> All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If, if we could save ourselves, we could go to God in our righteousness. We'd we drop dead right then and there. We could not see God and live. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show. Notice the description of the Lord Jesus, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice verse 16. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. That sounds like Exodus 33. Show me thy glory. Notice, the Lord dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. Whom no man hath seen nor can see. To whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So the Lord who says, show me thy, show, you know, answers Moses, show me thy glory in Exodus 33 is the same Lord that's spoken of here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. No man in and of themselves, no woman, no child, no one can go into God's presence in and of themselves. We, we, we could not go to heaven with our own efforts because we could not be righteous enough to get to heaven and stand in God's holy presence. God is righteous, and because of that, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, let me ask you, how many times have you heard this Romans Road short, short little presentation where they go into all the detail of how much of a sinner we really are? See, here's the problem with that whole, whole type of presentation. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I know I've done things wrong, but I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad of a sinner. Oh, we aren't? We aren't? So are you as good, as I said last week, are we as good as Jesus Christ? Because he's the standard by whom we're going to be compared Guess what? I need his righteousness. I need the faith of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. I cannot be saved in and of myself. Now, with that said, he goes on to say, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, he, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, there's several doctrinal terms I believe we need to pay attention to. Oh, I just, all this doctrine and theology. You better pay attention to this doctrine and theology because your eternal destiny is wrapped up in it. There's three words in particular I want to emphasize in this passage. Notice justification, redemption, propitiation. Those are doctrinal terms that we need and we must understand. First of all, justification. Notice being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now, as far as this justification, notice the word justified. Uh, I, I used to use this definition. I don't like it as much as I used to. Justified, they'll liken it this way, just as if I'd never sinned. 
That's, not, that's an incomplete definition. I'm not justified just as if I'd never sinned. No, I'm justified on the basis of someone else's character, someone else's righteousness. Again, we have to have the full picture of this. Notice it says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, as far as this justification, notice with me Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. So being justified freely by His grace. It's all related to God's grace. Notice it says in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. All right, so that's, that's the similar doctrine that Paul is teaching in Romans 3 about not being justified by the works of the law. So not by works of righteousness. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says, which we have done. But according to His mercy, He saved us. So mercy and grace are basically two aspects of, this, of the same thing as far as, as far as God's working. You know, God's mercy keeps us out of hell. God's grace gives us what we do not deserve. Notice, according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, as, as far as this washing of regeneration, I, I've emphasized before, we're not talking about the washing of baptism. This is talking about being regene, regenerated. The, the sinful genes from my, my sinful father all the way back to Adam, guess what? That's going to keep me out of, out of heaven. Right. You see, we have to have a new set of genetics. Notice, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The renewing work of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Notice this in verse 7 then. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified, Romans 3 says, justified freely by his grace. So justification is God declaring us righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go on with this, notice also consider the the term redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice with me uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Now, there's several pictures in the scriptures related to redemption. How we think about the kinsman redeemer we see in the Old Testament scriptures. The kinsman redeemer is one who would go in and redeem a property in the name of a you know, uh, brother that had died or relative that had died. So the, the property, the, the, the blessing would be redeemed on behalf of another. I want you to notice here this idea of redemption. Also in the Old Testament, we see that redemption is, was uh, accomplished by the paying of a price, a ransom. Notice through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, with that said, I want you to notice this statement about redemption and Uh, Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Notice we are literally, at the time of salvation, translated from the kingdom of Satan, darkness, into the kingdom of light, kingdom of God's dear Son. Notice carefully verse 14. In whom, talking about his dear Son, verse 13, in whom we have redemption even the forgiveness of sins. What did I skip? Colossians 1 verse 14. Notice very carefully. In whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Through His blood. Now, we're often told that the modern Bibles, there's no doctrinal problems. It doesn't affect any doctrine. Oh, really? It doesn't affect any doctrine? So let me ask you, what's the basis of our redemption? His shed blood. 
I think this is affecting, a change in the modern Bibles is affecting a doctrine. Notice, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, and so on. Ultimately, in verse 18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So let me ask you, if we're trying to save ourselves, is Jesus Christ having the preeminence in our salvation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's, it's, it's not all about us, what we can do. It's all about what Jesus Christ has already done. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the Bible even says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It goes on to say, in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, another verse I want you to see here before we move on to propitiation, because this will relate to uh, moving further here, Roman, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. I want to show you the extent, the extent of this redemption that's offered to mankind. Revelation 5, notice verses 5 through 9. Now, this is in the context of the book and John thinking that there's nobody worthy to open the book to loose the seals thereof, Revelation chapter 5. I want you to notice here, in fact, verse 4, he's weeping much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Notice the response to this in verse 5 and following. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered Satan. He conquered the grave. Uh, again, he's literally prevailed. Verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So obviously we're talking about omnipotence and omniscience related to the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, notice the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Notice verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. To open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God, notice, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto us, unto us, uh, made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Notice again this statement. Thou hast was slain, Jesus Christ was slain, and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood, by the blood of Jesus, out of every kindred and tongue or language, these are languages, and people and nation. Every nation, every language will someday be represented at God's throne. Now, there's a, there's a false teaching that's out there. John MacArthur made this popular. It's not, it did not originate with him. It's the death of Christ that saves, not the blood of Christ. That is heresy because, here, here's the whole point. If Jesus had died of old age, guess what? We still had no Savior. We still have no Savior if Jesus Christ died of old age. Oh, he died, but he did not shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It's, through the, remission, it's through the shedding of blood that we have this remission. Now, with that said, notice with me as far as propitiation, 1 John chapter 2. The next term is propitiation. 
propitiation, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. First John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, so obviously based on verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, we see that we are sinners, that we must have, you know, we have sin to confess from time to time. My little children, notice, his desire is that they sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate, literally like a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Notice, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why I say we need Christ's righteousness on our behalf because we are not righteous enough to stand before God. And he is the propitiation. Oh, there's a big word. Well, that's, you know, these, these, all these King James words. That we, no, this is a doctrinal term that must be understood and must be believed. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Notice there's no such thing as limited atonement. The propitiation effect of the, of the Lord's blood is not just for those who believe, but also for the sins of the whole world. Chapter 4, verse 9. First John 4, verse 9 and 10. First John 4, verse 9. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to, notice, be the, the propitiation for our sins. John three sixteen. 16. Notice, God loved us. Notice, the, the sacrifice, the shed blood of Lord Jesus, notice, is the propitiation for our sins. Again, Romans 3 says, Whom God set forth, He foreordained, essentially, to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins. Now, as far as this foreordaining, notice Acts chapter 2. I do not believe that God foreordains who's going to believe, but He foreordains the source of salvation. I, I want you to pay attention to this. Literally, it says Jesus Christ was set forth, set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. I want you to notice what, what uh, Peter says here on the day of Pentecost. It says here in verse 21, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sounds like Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man... Approved of God among you. That's, that's why the Bible calls him the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you ye yourselves also know. No, no one doubted the miracles. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be holden of it. Literally, God the Father foreordained, predetermined that Jesus Christ would be the way of salvation. None other way. No, no other way. Why? Because we're all sinners. We need a holy God. Now, as, as we think about this um, mission of sins, remission of sins literally talks about a passing over of our sins. Uh, now, that sounds like very clearly uh, Exodus chapter 12. The Passover. Remember it says the lamb, the lamb, a lamb, a lamb. Thousands of lambs are slain at that first Passover. Literally, thousands for, for millions of people. And it says a lamb. And it says that they were to apply the blood with what? With hyssop. Hyssop is a picture of faith. The applying of the shed blood. Literally, through faith as we see in Romans 3. 
literally through faith, I must apply Christ's blood on my behalf. Literally, it's, it's talking about the... Re- so so if, if there's no blood, as, as Colossians 1 supposedly says, you know, no, no, uh, through, the, through his blood, then there is no remission of sin because we have nothing to apply. So as, as we think about this word propitiation, then literally it's talking about appeasing God's wrath. Let me Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Colossians 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Uh, there's no diminished deity at you know, his incarnation. You know, he did not set aside his divine attributes. He was still God. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, it's not just his death, it's through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Literally, we're talking about God the Father's Wrath being appeased. Can I remind you back in chapter 1, verse 18? God's wrath from heaven is revealed. God's wrath is already revealed now. That's why I believe it's important for us to catch the words in verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. But now, God's wrath is now on everyone who does not believe. Everyone who does not believe. It doesn't matter how religious they are. It doesn't matter how many times they go to church. It doesn't matter all these good things that they do. God's wrath is upon all who have not believed in Jesus Christ, whom God has set forth, predetermined, preordained to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare. He's going to emphasize this declaration twice here. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So what does it mean about here, this this sins that are passed? In Acts 17, verse 30, Paul emphasizes the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. What's he talking about as far as the sins of the past? Can I remind you that Jesus Christ died approximately, shed his blood about 2,000 years ago. So what about the 4,000 years of history before him? All the way from Adam on down through, all were sinners, all died. All were judged by God. So what are we talking about as far as the sins of the past? That God winked at. Here's literally what I believe the, the past sins are all about. It's from the time from Christ's crucifixion all the way back to the beginning. Before Jesus Christ was offered on the cross to shed his blood. God had those covered by way of the types and the symbols of the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament sacrifices and so on. From the time of Jesus Christ on now as we look back 2,000 years... We can't trust in those things as a type, as a picture, as as we're trusting in the shed blood. Literally, God had to shed blood in the garden to care for Adam and Eve's sin. That was the type. And that's why why Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain did not. Cain, you know, I'm going to bring my own works. Literally, we must look at this, this as far as these past sins. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent because Jesus Christ has shed his blood. And as we think about this, now, notice again it says in verse 26 of Romans 3. 
to declare, I say, at this time, the, his righteousness. It's all about his righteousness, not mine. That he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Notice very carefully what, it's, what that's saying here. God has set aside, he, he set aside the, the concept of we can you know, save ourselves. So, so is God just if he's going to allow somebody who's violated the law to go free? Again, the illustration. A judge has this man standing before him. He's lived a perfect life except one, one violation of the law. So is that judge just in letting that man go free? Or he's a murderer. He's a murderer. He's, he's taken another person's life. So is that just as far as the family who's lost a loved one? Absolutely not. Is it just as far as, far as, you know, as, far as others who might commit that crime? Literally, God would not be just in allowing someone who's violated his law to go free. So how can God then be a justifier of those who are guilty as far as the law is concerned? All of us are guilty before God. I've already seen that, Romans 3.23. So how does a righteous God justify unrighteous people? By offering a way in which somebody else has been righteous on their behalf. This is an amazing plan of God. People wouldn't think of this. People in and of themselves would not think of this. God had to do this so that he would be just and also the justifier of those who have violated the law. Notice it says here, uh, uh, which believeth in Jesus is how this is applied. So God is just in justifying the one who's guilty. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. <clears throat> Notice Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith... And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So let me ask you, do you have to do anything to earn a gift? It's truly a gift? We, we can't do anything to earn a gift. or it's, it no longer becomes, it's no longer a gift. It becomes a wage, a payment. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That's why Paul asks, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but he has a very interesting statement. By the law of Faith. So when does faith become a law? When God says, by faith, through faith, your, your pardon is activated. In fact, I think it's interesting. I've mentioned this before. But Luke 18 talks about the Pharisee who stands thus praying with, with, with himself. And as he thinks about all these things, <clears throat> he's listening to all, of, all his credentials. You know, I think that I'm not like this publican over here. By the law of faith, verse 28, it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It's supposed to be Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. <clears throat> Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, <clears throat> that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The man Christ Jesus. And by him all that believe are justified. Notice all are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. How much clearer can you get? As Paul is preaching this message to, to, uh, to those who are trusting in the Old Testament law. By him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. We conclude. Here's the conclusion. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. That's the conclusion of the whole matter. 
Verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the Gentiles? Notice he says, yes, of the Gentiles also. Thank God that God has included us Gentiles in this whole plan. We conclude, notice, God is not just the God of the Jews. He's also the God of the Gentiles. Verse 30. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith, the Jews, and uncircumcision, Gentiles, through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Now I want you to notice here this, in this final summary in this courtroom. Notice there's one God. Obviously there can only be one way of salvation. Sorry, but the Jews are not getting a free pass. Unless they believe in their Messiah, they're not getting a free pass. Notice this, it's one God. He's going to justify the circumcision, the Jews by faith, and uncircumcision, the Gentiles, through faith. Now, very clearly, I want you to notice here it says in verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Notice he's asking another question here. God forbid, strong response. Yea, we establish the law. What I believe he's talking about there is that God, the purpose of the law, I should say, is established when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Notice Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Notice verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, all manner of lust. Lust, concupiscence. Those are parallel words in these verses here. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Notice the problem is sin, not the, not the law of God. The commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment of God holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but, but sin, notice it's sin, that's the problem. Sin that it, had, that it might appear as sin, working death in me by, which is, uh, by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Here's the problem. A lot of people don't see how exceeding sinful their sin is. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So again, as we think about this summary here, God has declared all of us sinners before a holy God. We're, we're not righteous enough to get into God's presence. But yet God has offered a pardon. So all, all, all anyone has to do is receive it and accept it by faith. So, so what about those who refuse the pardon? As I was studying on this, I was reminded of the, the statement, or the story, I should say, of George Wilson in the eight, early 1800s. I'm going to read this. This is actually from a, a tract online from a website that I came across. I knew about this, this story, and I came across this write-up of it. In 1829, two men, George Wilson and James Porter, robbed a United States mail carrier, both were subsequently captured and tried in a court of law. In May 1830, both men were found guilty of six charges, including robbery of the mail and putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. Both Wilson and Porter received their sentences, execution by hanging, <coughs> to be carried out on July 2. Porter was executed on schedule, but Wilson was not. Influential friends pleaded for mercy to the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, on his behalf. President Jackson issued a formal pardon, dropping all charges. Wilson would only have to, serve a, uh, would have to serve only a prison term of 20 years for his other crimes. Incredibly, George Wilson refused the pardon. An official report stated Wilson chose 
to waive and decline any advantage or protection which, which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. Wilson also stated he had nothing to say and did not wish in, uh, in any manner to avail himself in order to avoid sentence. The U.S. Supreme Court determined, this, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court in the early, early 1800s, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him, it is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. Did you notice that? Delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in court to force it on him. George Wilson committed a crime, was tried and found guilty. He was sentenced for execution, but a presidential, presidential decree granted him a full pardon. When he chose to refuse that pardon, he chose to die. Reading this amazing story, we might wonder, how would anyone refuse a pardon for the death sentence? The man was a fool. But if you're refusing a pardon, one enabling you to spend eternity in the presence of God rather than an everlasting punishment place, the Bible calls hell, are you not a fool? I wonder how many people are going to wake up in hell someday realizing they were a fool. God granted them a full pardon on the basis of what Jesus Christ did. Justified before a righteous God. No, no, that's too easy. I, I, I need to do something about this. I need to do something for my salvation. No, the payment, the full pardon has already been offered on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It's only through his shed blood, through his shed blood that we have the pardon of sin. Nothing that I can do, nothing that I can do will make me righteous enough before a holy God to see, to stand in his presence. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to fully understand this. And Lord, I pray, first of all, if somebody here today does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, they're trusting in something they can do, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Help them to realize that the pardon has already been offered on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done. And Lord, it would be very foolish to think that they're still going to try to earn their way to heaven when the pardon has been offered. Lord, I pray that you help us as believers in Christ to be careful how we present the truth of the gospel. Help us to be very clear that all of us are unrighteous before a holy God. All of us have sinned. Help, help us to make sure that people understand how serious that sin is. Lord, help us with this truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.